I feel like Krusty the Clown in the uh, in the booth, knocking out a commercial. Sean Wells, open that scab. Blah blah blah. So, Gunnar, we we have a uh, double episode. Yeah, yeah, a, a double header. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so this this episode and the next episode, we have uh, a guest star of uh, Normal Meta from uh, Booz Allen Hamilton, who's been a regular guest on our show. Um, and it's we we decided to split the episode into into two halves because um, we're covering two completely different areas of, of coolness. Um, one of which, it, the first one that we're going to have is uh, Nirmal talking about uh, the work that he's doing at Booz Allen and the open source community to uh, do Project Jellyfish. Mm-hmm. Um, which, and, and we're also going to talk about jellyfish, like real jellyfish. And, and so <laughs> we're going to do that. Um, and some of the cool things that, that, you know, what Project Jellyfish is, what it does, um, how people can get a hold of it, and also some of the the cultural and you know how how do you get uh, a consulting company uh, to uh, you know get their heads wrapped around open sourcing something when when often so often you know they're so focused on the, keeping their intellectual property as their special sauce. So mm-hmm. that's the first half, and then the second half is uh, the second episode, which will be. Uh, coming out after this one, um, we're going to go deep with normal normal on uh, talking about um, Arduino and and uh, explosives and uh, 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 what else? Uh, uh, burning, areas burning where, parachutes. Burning yeah, burning parachutes. Um, uh, no fly areas. Uh, making sure that you how to avoid them um, and and stuff like that. So it's really exciting. So um, anything else you wanted to add? No, no. I just. Um... Uh, just you know, doing this interview with with Normal, I'm just uh, so thoroughly impressed. Uh, first of all, with his uh, kind of open source and political prowess, uh, mm-hmm, getting uh, mm-hmm. getting jellyfish off the ground, um, he and his mm-hmm. team, um, and then also his uh, his technical and kind of double E prowess, uh, getting that uh, getting that Arduino into the stratosphere. Uh, I just think it's so cool. What a great project. Yep. Yeah. Out of this world. Yep. So I, well, let's just uh, dive right into it. Yeah. Let's get into it. So, Nirmal, thanks for joining us. Uh, no problem. Thanks for having me. It's glad to have you back. Glad to have you back. Yeah, it's been a little while. It has been a while. It has been. Um, so, what you been up to? Which, but I, I hear you've, uh, I hear you've been playing with invertebrates. <laughs> yes, uh, jellyfish, to be exact. Uh, some of the most important uh, animals in our complex ocean ecosystem, mm-hmm. and an important project for cloud computing and. Uh, delivering services to organizations all across the board. So uh, Project Jellyfish, our open source cloud brokering solution. Okay, so uh, okay, so first of all, what is a cloud brokering solution? Or what, do, what are you calling a cloud brokering solution? Absolutely. So, um, so cloud computing has obviously emerged as a very valuable technology in the IT enterprise ecosystem. And and a lot of players have started, or a lot of our clients have started to adopt uh, cloud infrastructure as a service and platform as a service technologies. And 
have put their maybe more than their toes in or started migrating certain applications to the cloud. And now the, the real enterprise problems start to arise around governance, around managing all these different cloud services, uh, showing, uh, uh, allowing their users to be able to provision and deprovision and manage all those services. So cloud brokering is the answer to all those challenges. It's the next step after kind of the initial cloud infrastructure as a service adoption and other service adoptions is how to wrap some kind of governance around there. So uh, so I, so as the Red Hat guy, my pat answer to that is CloudForms, right? Like I tell people CloudForms, that's what, that's what CloudForms <clears throat> does. It lets you uh, to manage VMs on many different infrastructures, uh, you know, lets you wire those VMs together. Um, but it sounds like you're talking about something over and above that. Absolutely. So uh, that cloud, multi-cloud management layer is absolutely critical. That's that's the next step. But then there's a missing piece above that, which is kind of the project management, the governance, the listing of catalog of services, chargeback, compliance, all those kind of business-focused needs on top of just pure, here are my VMs, here are my instances, uh, metrics, and, and, and provisioning and deprovisioning that a lot of the cloud management tools uh, provide in the system administrative view. It's the next level above that. And that's where we really see uh, cloud brokering Kind of fitting, kind of fitting in into the in, term, in terms of the overall ecosystem around cloud. So, <clears throat> uh, being able to provide that single pane of glass for uh, the users, the business users, and the other users that are not the day-to-day -day system administrators of your hosting environments, and also uh, having the ability to provide a a place for those business users to rapidly provision any type of service that might be provided by internal or external hosting providers um, at any level of the stack. So that's that's really the place that brokering lives. And it, it really opens up uh, your IT organization to reach the value that cloud is supposed to offer past just uh, operational efficiencies in the beginning. So Nirmal, is Jellyfish, does it live on top of something else or does it reach the whole way down and talk to the virtualized infrastructure or the cloud APIs directly or, or how, do, how does that work? Absolutely. So uh, I'll step back a little bit and talk about what Project Jellyfish is and then uh, I'll let you, uh, I'll, I'll tee up that in terms of the integration points there. So right now Project Jellyfish um, is a new user interface and a core set of APIs around that organizational concepts that allow organizations to uh, provision services, create new service catalogs, and uh, do the chargebacks and administrative layer. And uh, that's more of a business user uh, view into the uh, different services provided by infrastructure, platform, and software service. To, in order to, to enable the provisioning and the deprovisioning and the administration of infrastructure as a service, right now Project Jellyfish is connected to Red Hat's uh, or the open source Manage IQ uh, multi-cloud management tool set 
that's obviously Red Hat Cloudforms as well uh, in the supported version. So that's the connection there. We are, we're leveraging all the functionality of the connections to these multiple cloud providers for the infrastructure as a service capability and potentially other service capability in the future once MIQ matures down that path. And um, we, we consider those modules that we're connecting to uh, from Jellyfish to provision those services. If it's not covered by uh, MIQ or if it's kind of a very specific service that's to a specific client, we can, we've set up a framework within Project Jellyfish to create those plugins as well for uh, provisioning services that are outside of the purview of MIQ. But it's, it's a really great open source comprehensive solution for not only aiming at infrastructure as a service through MIQ, but also potentially other services that uh, are just out there that need to be kind of governed. So, so, uh, so you, what you just wrote this over the weekend uh, with your booze buddies no. and, and then published it, or, or like, how did you how did you how did you how did you come by this project? Uh, so, we, you know, the the history of Project Jellyfish and. Uh, is is actually a lot longer than you might know. We've been working on um, the, the the historical artifacts of what now is Project Jellyfish for almost five to six years now. It, it started off in the initial days of cloud computing when we got our ser- first initial um, client base to implement. We we created user interfaces to be able to provision, deprovision. Virtual environments. Uh, this was back when infrastructure as a service was still just being able to have VMs running on some kind of hypervisor, and a lot of those NIST cloud computing characteristics, such as a self-provisioning, self-service provisioning portal, didn't exist. And so we started with these rudimentary HTML and just JavaScript uh, user interfaces that kind of evolved into. Uh, a Java-based, uh, more uh, project management-focused user interface that we've implemented a, a, a couple different client sites. And then we morphed that into starting to go up the stack in terms of uh, introducing elasticity and uh, resource optimization with integrating a, a Drupal-based uh, front-end with a Fuse ESB enterprise service bus and BPMS rules engine to do some of the rules for elasticity and integrating that with CloudForms as as a full cloud engine kind of solution. And um, since CloudForms is based off of Ruby on Rails and our solution started to become a little bit too heavy, we decided to uh, rewrite our whole entire cloud brokering solution as a Ruby on Rails application to be a lot more lightweight and and be able to adapt faster to a changing environments and and allow our clients to kind of dictate more of the look and feel and customization. So mm-hmm. that's what Project Jellyfish is. Uh, it's going to be open sourced. Uh, I think in the next couple of days. So the week of uh, what is that? Uh, the seventh of February uh, oh, cool. should be on GitHub and. Uh, uh, we're very excited. It, it looks great. Um, it has a lot of great capability, and it really extends um, the feature sets that cloud computing are supposed to promise to business users. And it also fills the gap in the market for a solid open source based cloud brokering solution out there. So, does and, it? Uh, how does it demo? Does it demo well? 
It demos very well. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've been on the road now for at least a couple of years now, pitching our cloud engine solutions and and really trying to push the edge of what's what's doable on top of infrastructure as a service. And uh, now with a lot of some of our very forward-looking clients starting to adopt platform as a service, they start to see the need for eliminating a lot of the shadow IT that's happening right now. So and uh, I was going to say that's interesting because you I, I noticed you've studiously avoided saying virtual machine when you could have said service. And so it sounds like this isn't just about kind of slapping a bunch of business logic and a user-friendly UI on top of like VM management. This sounds like you're doing other stuff as well. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, so how do you, so tell me a bit, yeah, tell me a little bit. So that. Project Jellyfish right now is, is the kind of core APIs for kind of the project management, creating projects, applications, pr uh, the e-commerce kind of workflow for provisioning services, service catalog, and managing budgets uh, within one user interface. Where Jellyfish is going is actually very exciting. We see this as a place to start to pull uh, information from other services into this uh, single user interface and really uh, enabling a project manager or business user and the IT um, hosting providers or internal organizations to have one place for application developers to see like their agile burndown charts, uh, access to data warehouses or data lakes, um, being able to uh, interact with the DevOps workflows, provisioning to potentially containers and microservices and other new architectures as they come out. And then also potential, uh, that's the same single place for API management and other uh, core IT services in the future. So that's where we're positioning Jellyfish is to be that place where we're not going to reinvent the UIs for all these specific tools, but to kind of bubble up to the surface, the, the key metrics and the key data points and, and provide that single place for that kind of business view into your whole entire IT uh, services that are being provided. So what you're describing, Normal, is that this is uh, like cloud broker-wise, this is like a floor wax and a dessert topping. It's got to be difficult designing something like this to avoid kind of taking over everything. Um, right. so, so, you know, suddenly, you know, it starts off like, oh, I'm just modeling a couple of business rules. And then you end up kind of capturing the entire universe inside the system. Right. Um, so like, how do you control yourself or like, where do you draw the line? Like, where's the, at what point do you say, okay, now we're done. Right. So we're really focused on kind of some core tenants, if you will, of cloud brokering. One is the, the ability to, to, uh, provision these services, so seeing a, or and deprovision these services, so seeing a catalog of services and kind of the governance around that. The second thing is uh, providing a, a place for uh, ingest of specific information to make a decision on which uh, services to provision for that user. So uh, being able to customize the questions that an IT organization has to ask their customers to kind of refine and and uh, wean the, the services that that user is allowed to provision or uh, make that decision on their behalf. Um, that's really the core focus of, of, of cloud brokering. Then we have uh, governance and chargebacks. Uh, that's, that's the other kind of fundamental piece that a lot of our client base is, is looking for a solution, which is that's great. We've, we've you know, the, answering the question of we've provisioned, provisioned all these services on different clouds or different 
uh, uh, SaaS-based services, where's one place where I can see how much this is costing me per month or how much resources I'm allocated and how much I have left. That kind of information kind of customized per, per engagement. And then the other piece is kind of governance overall, the whole entire IT uh, kind of life cycle of these services. So being able to uh, organize these projects and applications and the, and the, the life cycle of these in some kind of st- consistent way. So all these other things like the agile burn down or connections to data lakes, those are all um, nice to have, but that's not core to cloud brokering. That's kind of core to where we see Project Jellyfish going in the future, expanding outside of just cloud brokering. Okay. Okay. Got it. I don't think I skirted your question. No, 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 no. I, I no, think I, I, I think you, you were trying to say, okay, so this is like a never ending, you know, this, this never ends, but I think it will. <laughs> I mean, it, obviously, you know, you don't, you don't think about the end. You just think about what are the features and functionalities that will solve the challenges and where are the gaps, right? And that's, that's kind of what we're focused on with Project Jellyfish. Right. And the other piece of that is we're, we're going to be taking Project Jellyfish and, and I don't know what the name of it's going to be, but the, that's going to be our team that's working on that is going to be working on open source technologies as, as a focus. So it's kind of like a, a label for our, our presence and venture and um, interaction and partnerships and relationships within open source. And so that's really where this is our avenue for interacting with the broader open source communities and and uh, you know, keeping engaged in that manner. So that's that's the other kind of bigger vision of Project Jellyfish as well. So how like with normal with you know, typically working for um, you know integrators and people who who advise clients and all that. A lot of times they they take pride in the. It's like oh, we've developed a nice proprietary solution and it's great and everything. How how did you get? Um, uh, Booz Allen to uh, to buy in and, and commit to this, and, and are you basically doing work the same way that you've done it at Booz traditionally, or did you guys have to change the way that you guys do things? Uh, all of the above. So um, it was. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was a challenge. Uh, it's it's not easy convincing an organization to open source uh, something that they've put investment dollars behind and time and resources and that, you know, you're just giving away kind of for free. And I, I put that over heavy quotes because, you know, we see the, our, our team and, and me personally as an advocate of open source within Booz Allen, we see open sourcing as not just giving away software for free and then that's it. It's, it's more about creating a commitment to our clients, to the market, to the industries, to our developers, and to the community in general, to say, here we are, we're focused on this, we, we're, we're trying to make an open place to solve these issues that we see are common challenges among a lot of our clients, and to make a better value proposition for them. That's, that's mm-hmm. how we have to kind of spin it, if you will, to, to make it palatable to the to the higher ups to an extent and and showing that that's that's a real big differentiator within uh this this industry when it comes to competing against large integrated software vendors that have huge multi-million dollar uh packages of software 
and mm-hmm. uh, you know, not being a traditional software uh, development company or product company, um, how do we play in that space? How do we, um, you know, make sure that we meet the client's needs? And that's the uh, open source is kind of an an awesome place to be able to address that in a way that kind of enables a a, a smaller player to be able to compete at that kind of level. Uh, I'm noticing a lot of that, especially with the, like you say, with these like multi million dollar like really involved software projects um, where you get something like, I'll just say it like VMware. Um, you have like three big integrators all bidding on a project to implement VMware. Um, because the VMware stack is the VMware stack, they have they don't have a lot of leeway in how they're going to differentiate themselves. And so I've definitely seen a lot more interest from especially smaller integrators, right? Um, like mm-hmm. Booz, which is in fact incredibly a smaller integrator. Um, yeah, using yeah, using approaches like open source in order to kind of differentiate what they're doing, because mm-hmm. um, otherwise they're really not much more complicated than a than a reseller, right? Right. And uh, first of all, I wouldn't say that we're too small. Uh, <laughs> Twenty six thousand people is not a small small company by any means. But in terms of like releasing products, yeah, we're not we're obviously not as a large uh, software vendor um, mm-hmm. like some of the other system integrators out there, which kind of uh, is interesting because. The other play there is being open, so uh, you know, releasing the software as open source um, differentiates us from being in a position to only pitch our solution because it, you know, we're not tied to a full ecosystem of products where we can be still agnostic when meeting uh, clients' needs, but mm-hmm. also showing that we understand how these tools work because we're creating them ourselves. And by the way, you can see them for free. You can see our work ethic. You can see the quality of the work we do. And it really shows our commitment to actually solving problems versus just paying lip service to uh, whatever uh, stack of software that we're integrating together. Does that make sense? I think that really resonates a lot. And the other other piece there is that um, it's really challenged us to make sure that we're focused on the exact needs of our clients and not trying to scramble to press, put pressure on certain integrators to completely re-architect or kind of do things that that are not doable now or by using mm-hmm. open source technologies fill those gaps of things that don't exist today and but still are required to meet those those uh, client challenges which i think is one of our biggest value adds is being able to do that yeah so i could guess that you probably had at least one meeting with um, with management where they were probably scared to death thinking, well, what if Boeing or Lockheed or something, why can't, you know, they just take the code out of GitHub and compete against us with it. And, you know, what did, did that come up at all? Or did they think about, you know, like, oh, we're giving the intellectual property away and, you know, how, how we're not protecting it. And that's, it's so counterintuitive for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And, but, um, I mean, so that's always a risk, and that's, I mean, that's a risk for Red Hat as well, right, with mm-hmm. Linux and with uh, uh, JBoss or whatever, uh, uh, other open source tools, you guys open source. That's always going to be a risk. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, our, you know, our proposition is, hey, we're the ones that created this. We're the ones who understand the integration of these tools into an environment, and it's pretty clear because we're we saw this gap in the market and we're we've put investment behind it that we understand 
how to meet those challenges. We're not trying to scramble and morph existing vendor uh, products to do capabilities that they're not designed to do. And then at the same time, turn around and say, yes, this is the stack that, that will solve all your world, you know, world hunger. We're creating the software to solve world hunger and showing it for free and, and seeing where that innovation is happening. And then at the same time, we come in to support it, to you know, make sure it's secure, to help integrate it into those environments. Of course, there's a risk for our competitors to white label or take this or not white label, but take the code and and um, support it and do do whatever they want with it. But at the end of the day, if if our competitors are are using the code or or integrating it, that just validates more of the community and the need for it. And that, you know, as the biggest involvers with Project Jellyfish at this moment, that just kind of validates our role even more in terms of the client. Uh, how the client views us. And, and that's really how you have to position the ROI. On top of that, it's, it's also a, uh, a lot of the times our, com uh, our competition already has uh, either they've acquired companies that provide software within the cloud realm or where, wherever uh, the industry is. And they're kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, stuck with those stacks, or they might have their own clouds, right? That they're going to try to put all their uh, solutions onto and sell first. Um, you know, there's kind of a balancing act there as well. So that doesn't mean that those competitors are just going to jump into adopt uh, what we're what we're releasing. Right, and and ultimately uh, you're just selling. Ultimately, Booz Allen is in the business of selling expertise, right? Absolutely. Um, and so, really, Jellyfish just becomes a platform on which you can deliver all of that expertise. Right? Absolutely, it becomes like a shortcut. Yeah, absolutely. You know? That's yeah. the ROI right there. <laughs> it's not a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we we're still here to make money, uh, uh, regardless. But um, you know, we really see open source as as that way to make a a good, trustful relationship with our clients and the community around those challenges and and show that commitment so normal so you so i presume you know you're working on jellyfish as part of like you said five or six years ago you you were doing like the proto jellyfish for you know for one customer or another and uh at some point you and your co-conspirators decided hey we really ought to open source this thing because it's going to make our lives easier it's good for booze it's good for the customer etc so how do you start the conversation with your bosses? Um, how do you, I get this question all the time, like, how do I start to make the case? Um, you know, because it's easy for a lot of people will think, oh, well, you know, I really should open source this thing, or, you know, this project would really benefit from being in the community. And they're, they find it very difficult to get anywhere inside the organization to get all the approvals and to make people feel comfortable with the decision. Um, so how did, how did you do that? So the one word answer is luck, right? I was lucky to, enough to have uh, Manjeet Singh and Jared and other folks on our team that, were, uh, especially Manjeet, that were that understood open source. They they worked with open source technologies for a very long time. They understood the value proposition and they defended our decisions to, uh, or and and commitment to open source these technologies um, as soon as. Um, it was viable to do so. On top of that, uh, you know, over the last couple of years, we've established a very strong relationship with Red Hat, and that the the kinds of uh, successes we've had with our client engagements, with implementing Red Hat solutions, and um, showing 
how the market was really swinging toward adopting open source technologies while we're, we kind of got ahead of that trend and we saw it coming and, and we were really well positioned to take advantage of that. And, um, luckily we had really great leadership that, that stood strong and kind of put their, uh, force behind it to say, yes, I, I, the decision for Booz Allen to open source our software and to push forward with that is the correct decision and, uh, you know, fighting on our behalf to the other management uh, layers to defend that decision was really just came down to having those group that, that mix of people in, in the, in the mix. So, uh, Unfortunately, there's no like real great answer around that. It's just <laughs> identifying the the people in your organization that are open source um, accepting or or have worked with open source technologies, and uh, finding the leaders that either have in the past in past lives have have touched open source technologies. Which, if uh, if you have leadership that's you know worked as system admin admins on Unix and and so uh, other uh, older platforms in, in the past, it, it becomes kind of a no-brainer to a lot of those folks. Mm -hmm. um, that that open source is is obviously a, a strong uh, case uh, within enterprise deployments, and uh, just finding those folks, uh, encouraging them to be your mentors and defending those decisions. And then also, we did a lot of uh, you know business case analysis uh, discussions with our partners. Um, looking at the uh, different business models around uh, potentially not open sourcing it, open sourcing it, licensing, uh, support structures, all those kind of, uh, you know, nitty gritty numbers that the management's going to want to have, having that prepared and making a strong case for it. And you can, I think you, uh, one, you know, one can make it happen within the organization. Now, at the same time, that doesn't mean uh, open sourcing is easy to do. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, there's still some challenges there in terms of licensing and um, understanding the, the nature of the code that you write and the partnerships you might have and mm -hmm. everything that, that Red Hat's very familiar with. And I'm sure you, Gunnar and Dave, have, have dealt with in the past. So, um, you know, they're no stranger to those kind of issues. But... Um, for an organization like Booz, that those were all very new challenges and and things that we had to kind of figure out because it's a lot easier just to keep code proprietary and not have to deal with any of that. Right, right. <laughs> and so and so when, and so you know inevitably when you talk about a new open source project, you talk about oh, what's your license? How'd you choose your yes. license? Um, but of course, like at the behind that choice of license is like first you had to make a bunch of decisions about what kind of project you wanted. Um, and how, what kind of community you wanted to build, right? Um, you know, if you have a, if you have a GPL license, you're going to get a different set of quote unquote customers for the project than if you just license it under like MIT or Apache or something like that. So, um, can you, can you tell me a little bit about, especially since you went through all these business case analysis, I suspect you came out of there with a pretty strong idea about what kind of community you wanted to build, what kind of partners you wanted to bring in. So kind of walk me through that, that thought process. Absolutely. So with a cloud brokering solution, it, community is probably the strongest piece of of any kind of cloud brokering solution. It's uh, being able to, in an open source way, bring the providers of services, um, our clients even, into the mix to be able to create plugins, connectors, and improve the code 
and and have the providers provide connections to their services. So, mm-hmm. w- with that in mind, um, the licensing decision kind of came around a couple of different things. One was um, that that kind of community aspect and being able to um, create a community around cloud brokering, and also knowing that we're going to be partnering with uh, like cloud forms and or manage IQ and other open source uh, communities as well and what their licensing schemes were. So there might be potential integration in the future. Right. So you want to kind of make sure those those ducks are in a row. That being said, though, it is and this is I'm going to go on a tangent here. Uh, this is the, the licensing, the open source licensing tangent, which is <laughs> there is no good resource from the open source communities on figuring out what license to adopt. It is, it is so hard <laughs> <laughs> to find any canonical resource, no pun intended, for <laughs> licensing information. And what I mean by that is, okay, you know, start with the basics. What are what is open source? What is open source licensing? Uh, what are the license models that are popular? What are the ones that are available? Um, what are the risks associated with those? How do they work? Mm-hmm. And oh yeah, where's the button that converts all this into something that a non-technical lawyer can understand? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and 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 even then, how do I understand it as a as a software developer, or maybe not a full software developer, but maybe a project manager? It it is, it, it was insanely difficult. Um, to find a good place to to get all that information. Yes, you can go to Apache website. Yes, you can go to GPL. Yes, you can go to MIT and get the actual licenses and get their take on why that license should be adopted. But, you know, in talking to so many developers that work at uh, different open source companies and talking to so many people that have open sourced their projects, I've yet to find a solid answer to any of these questions. And it, I think it would behoove us as a community, and I mean, I mean that as a broad open source community, to create some kind of website, just some kind of like single serving website that's like, you know, how to open source.org or something <laughs> that just kind of summarizes and in the most, you know, obvious way what the process should be and how to make those decisions. Yeah. And, and, oh my God, it was, it got to the point. So, you know, when we, we open sourced version one, um, it, we were having these, these just circular discussions around what the definitions of certain aspects of these certain licenses meant, like modular assemblies versus interconnected, you know, systems versus, Mm -hmm. you know, like all these very technical terms that are embedded in these and how they translate into, you know, Ruby gems and libraries and and just pure code. Like it it was not mind numbing. And (laughs) uh, to be honest, like we just pulled the trigger on GPL and just said, okay, let's just, just we need to make a decision about this. Let's just go for it. Yeah. And kind of ask for forgiveness later and do our due diligence. You know, we obviously did our due diligence beforehand to make sure there wasn't anything inappropriate in our code or that we couldn't do that to. But, um, you know, at some point you kind of just have to go for it because otherwise 
you'll never make a decision on it. And we got so close to that po point of not making a decision that, you know, it was almost becoming, uh, you know, we didn't even want to open source it anymore because there's just too much effort, you know, to yeah. try to figure that out, which or, is what yeah. the, like, I, I feel like from an open source community aspect, we should not make it a huge barrier of entry to be able to open, like to figure out a license to the point where it's, that could be detrimental to you actually open source, like to making a decision to open source something. Yeah, uh, I think we need to solve that problem absolutely as a community. Just, just like the other problems, which are funding and and you know core libraries and all that kind of other stuff that comes yeah. up. So, well, so one one of the reasons why <laughs> one of the reasons why I think it's so difficult is, uh, yes, there's you know there's a bunch of options, but there's also a bunch of intents and uh, goals that people come to these projects with. Um, part of the problem you're describing is right. I mean, there's a lot of licenses, so there's a lot of choices. Um, and as a matter of fact, you know, um, thankfully, you know, there's only about a dozen major open source licenses. I mean, can you imagine trying that's to get That's insane. A, a dozen get, is already too insane. <laughs> well, no, but, well, well, that's, I mean, a dozen may be insane, but then imagine like every piece of proprietary software has its own license, right? So Fair that means enough. like we're talking right. about like the interaction between like thousands of different proprietary licenses, right? Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, that's like that's extra crazy. But the, <laughs> but the uh, but you know part of the challenge too is is that you know when selecting a license, you're not just thinking about like the licensing terms kind of narrow, you know, just the licensing terms. You're also thinking about like what you know going GPL versus going Apache means you're going to have like a different kind of interaction with your contributors, right? Um, going with, uh, you know, BSD versus Apache means a whole nother set of things like, well, do you know, do I need contributor license agreements and, you know, stuff like that. I mean, there's, um, it really is, uh, uh, it's, it's a lot more difficult than just saying, I'm going to have a license and then figure it all out later. Yeah. Um, I, I wish there was some kind of open source funded, like legal, aid if you will, uh -huh. or some kind of like hotline where you could just call and be like i'm considering this or <laughs> right. you know like what is the law you know some kind of like uh you know i'm not a lawyer but i'm you know lawyer kind of aid yeah well so you know i know <laughs> GitHub, it was really well, hard to so find. github was getting uh github was getting beat up for a long time about um not forcing people to choose licenses on the uh, when you you know when you create a new repository on github um you didn't have to choose a license and so they uh, I think they created a quick tool that says like, what do you want to do with this project? Do you want people to do this? Do you want people to do this? You know, click, click, checkbox, checkbox, checkbox. And then it'll say, okay, these are your, these are the three licenses that you want to choose from. Um, and so they do have kind of a, it's a very crude tool, obviously, um, because, you know, choosing a license can be, you know, a much more nuanced operation, but, you know, just for like a quick and dirty kind of guidance, I think GitHub has a tool like that. I'll, I'll include a link to it in the, in the yeah. show notes. So but, the, the main, the other thing is there is so much, philosophical um grant i don't want to say grandstanding but so much philosophical kind of reasoning behind all these licenses mm -hmm. that it makes it even more muddier you know if you talk to every time i talk to someone they have their own opinion on what these different licenses mean and when it comes to legalese it's kind of scary that the same document can have different philosophical like different kind of reasoning behind it or people interpret it in different ways. Like the whole entire point of that is that they can only be interpreted in a specific way, at least in my opinion, but that's not the case. So it's very hard to kind of make a decision on licenses when there's still kind of like 
these kind of physical philosophical debates over them and and the pure the the pureness of of what kind of license you pick you know right. like it famously like famously like the the gpl interactions question right which has launched stuff like you know so the jeep the the interaction between GPL and other kinds of licenses created the need for like the LGPL and then that created more questions. And so now we've got stuff like the AGPL and then the GPL V3. Yeah. Right. And, so, and a lot of that stuff is, you know, because it hasn't been formally tested uh, in court, um, you know, there's still some, you know, th there are kind of consensus opinions about what these contracts mean and, and what the consequences are. But, um, you know, even today there, there are clauses in some of these licenses that haven't been tested in court. And so people don't really know what's going to happen if they were ever to be challenged on it. Um, that's definitely, that's definitely one of the problems too. Uh, but again, not unique to open source, right? Um, there are plenty of clauses in plenty of poorly written proprietary licenses, right. um, that have the same problem. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's, it's really, uh, if you think about, you know, this kind of the mountain of legalese that the software industry is built on uh, both proprietary and open source. Um, it's amazing that we get anything done. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just a network of trust at this point. <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> it's a right. web of trust yeah. that, that we're all kind of in good faith kind of <laughs> making these decisions and not kind of, uh, otherwise we'd all just be stuck still picking dis licenses and there'd be no code on GitHub. Right. <laughs> right, right. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> or they'd be just changing every, every day. Um, <laughs> So that that's kind of my kind of take on it, and I would love to see a consortium of tech companies um, that really benefit from open source and or are open source companies. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Kind of <laughs> really embrace uh, some kind of way to make it easier for uh, folks like Booz Allen, mm -hmm. folks like you know myself as a developer that might just have their own things that they want to open source or that next new cool thing that some, you know, high schoolers working in, uh, working on at, in their homeroom class that they might want to open source in the future if it's too difficult or if there's huge ramifications for the licensing that they pick that they might not know about and that might change their decision or keep them from open sourcing that. I think as a community, we need to be there to, <laughs> to make right. that easier to do, you know? Yeah. Well, I think, I think there's, a, there's definitely such a thing as like license exhaustion. Um, especially, mm -hmm. you know, if you've been around, if you've been doing this for, uh, 20 years, like I have, um, you've been up and down the hill on the licensing discussions and like, frankly, nobody wants to have those discussions anymore. Right. Like the, the like everyone has just completely lost patience with it. Um, and yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why like on GitHub, you'll see people, you know, a, a not choosing licenses, or if they are forced to choose a license, they just like, what's the most permissive license? Like, what's the license that has like, I don't care. I don't care what people do with this code. Like, give me the zero yeah. license, right? Like, give me the and so the and the so that's license license. Yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. Um, and so you get, you know, you get folks go to BSD or whatever. Um, I don't know. For what it's worth, my you know my suggestion for most new projects, the the license that creates the fewest problems while best protecting you um, tends to be, I think, Apache. Um, the Apache license is like pretty tight, um, just in terms of like. Um, you know, it covers you on the intellectual property and some of the infringement questions. Uh, but of course I'm not a lawyer. Um, uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, 
Yeah. Anyway, it's a, you're <laughs> right. It's a total mess. Like even even now, like even now, I'm trying to give you like you know advice in 45 seconds, and suddenly <laughs> and suddenly I'm talking about infringement, and I'm like, okay, well now it's over. Like you know, now, <laughs> exactly. now I got another. And now I got to talk about this for an hour. Yeah. Right. In a nutshell, is the problem. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what about places like uh, the Software Freedom Law Center or the Software Freedom Conservancy or or places like that, or even the Apache Foundation? I would think they would have outreach to be able to coach people. Yeah. Um, we, we did, uh, do some research on those, on those sites for, you know, figuring out what, what the terminology means and what, what the, you know, caveats are for these different licenses. Uh, we definitely reached out to some of those resources, but at the end of the day, it's corporate lawyers and other people that were trying to rely on information and in their interpretation. So, you know, there's only so much that I can con- try to convince a lawyer that that's what that clause means. And then, you know, they have to interpret it the yeah. way they want to interpret it. Right. That's so. one, that's one piece of advice <laughs> I get. That's one piece of advice I would give everyone, especially when they're dealing with like corporate counsel is that open source licenses are like a weird sub niche of a sub niche of a sub niche of the legal <laughs> discipline. Right. And mm-hmm. if you give like an uninitiated lawyer, if you hand them the GPL, for instance, um, their chances are good that their head will explode. Right. Yeah. They'll panic. Um, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, and so that, that happens even to none, like just anybody. Right. <laughs> right, right. Well, and so the, and so, I mean, one of the reasons why, you know, at Red Hat, we have like a stable of lawyers who specialize in this stuff and it's because it's like, stop hogging them all. um but it is important to like at the very least you know talk to you know an intellectual property lawyer when you're talking about open source licensing because you know there are a lot of nuances that get lost if you don't have kind of the domain expertise on that stuff so i that's one piece of advice i can give so normal where did the name come from and and why are these community projects why do they have such adorable names (laughs) so uh project jellyfish um jellyfish came from Obviously, the the animal of the ocean, the jellyfish, mm-hmm. um, and it's it plays an important role in in the food chain in the ocean. Um, it's responsible for maintaining balance in the the ocean ecosystem, if you will. And actually, um, humans wouldn't exist on this planet without jellyfish kind of balancing the the, uh, the salinity and the temperature within within the ocean. So. Um, we saw uh, Project Jellyfish, or the, the the term jellyfish, as a, as kind of the the balance and uh, the keepers of a, a large ecosystem, and in this case, it would be cloud and 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 different services. So that's really where jellyfish came from. Um, uh, Jerry Cottrell, our fearless leader, you know, has tons of jellyfish facts memorized. So. I'm gonna to have to defer to him whenever you interview him uh, with all the with all the jellyfish facts, but I don't have any <laughs> memorized, unfortunately. But that's where the project jellyfish came from, and uh, um, you know it, that's you know coming back to open sourcing. That's another hard thing to do is finding a good name that's not like copyrighted and trademarked, and you know is open enough to be able to to kind of uh, establish a brand around. Yeah, yeah, because it's like to me, I, I see like a lot of the open source projects. Going back to the adorable name part, you know, they they tend to be that way. Like I I don't see like digital scorpion or or some other you know like scary sounding thing, which is usually you know the typical like a DoD project name or something like that. That's like kind of scary and and manly and macho yeah. and all that. But but it seems like a lot of the 
open source projects have a have more of a cute name, and I, and I wonder if sometimes if that's even done on purpose to make it almost too cute, so people don't use the purely doc you know community code and and buy the productized version of it. Right, <laughs> right, right. Because <laughs> they, sh- you know, oh they don't want to, you know, they don't want to implement internally. Is like, oh, welcome to the Jellyfish portal. They want their, <laughs> you know, IT systems administration console or something. You know, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. The Panopticon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So, so what's handling your critical business infrastructure? Oh, Project Caramel Cupcake. <laughs> it's like, no, that's not. I don't want that. <laughs> How'd you guess our name of our next open source project? <laughs> So that that was uh, that was great, Dave. You know, yes. What was interesting to me is, uh, you know, and this happens so often uh, with open source developers is that you spend as much time talking about licensing as you do your project or, or coding yeah. or coding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and Normal's plea for uh, a simple to use licensing uh, chooser. Uh, is duly noted. Um, I, I doubt anybody will ever get around to building something like that, but he's right. Uh, that would be a great tool to have. That would be mm-hmm. a great tool to have. Um, so if folks want to learn more uh, about Project Jellyfish, they can go to projectjellyfish.org. Uh, Jellyfish uh, built on top of Manage IQ, uh, which can be found at manageiq.org. And uh, Dave, if folks want to find links to all the stuff that we talked about, um, like the, uh, the like the, there's a video from the from the design summit um, mm-hmm. with, uh, with normal, uh, talking even more de- in even more depth, uh, yes. about, about jellyfish. Uh, where can they go for that video? Yeah. Yeah. So if you can't get enough normal, um, you want to go to uh, dgshow.org. So D's and Dave, G's and Gunner show.org. That's right. And, uh, I hope everybody joins us for the second half of this podcast where normal talks about building his, uh, killer stratospheric Arduino robots. Yes. Um, the, you're, do, do not miss this. Uh, hear me now. Believe me later. <laughs> All right. We'll see everybody next week. Yep. Bye.